When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Katyn Massacre of 22,000 Polish prisoners of war is a war crime that stands out in history. Committed in utmost secrecy between April and May 1940, it was undertaken on the direct orders of Joseph Stalin. For nearly 50 years, the Soviet regime succeeded in maintaining the fiction that Katyn was a Nazi atrocity. Their story left unchallenged by consecutive Western governments, fearful of upsetting a powerful wartime ally and then a potent Cold War adversary. I'm your host James Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and as the shocking evidence of atrocities continues to mount from the current war in Ukraine, I wanted to revisit Katyn to explore the decades-long search for answers. To do this, I'm joined by Jane Rogoiska, the author of a new book, Surviving Katyn. By focusing on the experience of the few survivors of the massacre and the forensic Polish wartime investigation, Jane reveals a relentless quest for the truth in the face of a ruthless regime determined to suppress that very truth. So here is Jane Rogoiska on the Katyn Massacre. Hi Jane, welcome back to Warfare. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. How are you? Yes, I'm good. And it is great to have you back on the podcast. I just wish it was under happier circumstances, because as we are recording, the world is still trying to understand the extent of the alleged atrocities by Russian troops against Ukrainian civilians and potentially prisoners of war in places like Bucha. Although we don't yet know the full extent of the atrocities seen there, or if there are other sites across the country, it is possible that Bucha will go down in history as a name that epitomises Russian war crimes. In fact, there are parallels here between this and another period of history, a period of history that you've been working on for a long time, the Katyn Massacre. Because am I right in thinking that the name Katyn Massacre is actually an umbrella term in itself, not just a reference to one site of atrocity? Yes, that's correct. So many people understandably think that the 1940 Katyn massacre refers to a single event. And the reason for this is because when the first mass grave was found in 1943 by the German army, this was the only discovery. So it was always called Katyn and it wasn't until the collapse of communism many decades later that other burial sites were found. But they're all connected. They're all part of the same order of execution and they're all part of the same group of men. 
Well, take us back in this history. Where should we start? Because it was in a, a very different period of the Second World War, a quite unique period at the start of that war in May 1940, when the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany were in what, well, I'm sure some people on both sides saw as a pretty secure alliance. And I believe it's then that the massacre took place. Yes, but I think we have to go back a bit further than that, which is to the very opening moments of the Second World War. So the narrative that we're familiar with in Britain or the United States tends to gloss over the first sort of nine months of the war. We call it the phony war. In France, they called it the drôle de guerre, you know, the funny war. But actually, this was a period of intense importance for countries that were occupied in the first wave by the German army. And of course, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact had been concluded in late August 1939, much to the surprise of many people, including the, Russia, the Soviet ambassador in London, Maisky. And it made us rather unlikely allies of Hitler and Stalin. And they both signed the agreement out of self-interest. They had something to gain from it. They were not natural allies, which explains perhaps why later in the war they reverted to a more normal order of events when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. But as part of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, it meant that two weeks after the Nazi invasion of Poland from the West, the Red Army invaded Poland from the East. So this was on the 17th of September, and no invasion was announced, war was not declared, and the Polish army, in chaos, retreating from the sort of Nazi onslaught, fell into the arms of the Red Army and initially didn't know whether to greet them as saviours, as friends or as enemies. They did not come in peace and they took an enormous number of prisoners. And amongst these prisoners, they singled out particularly officers, gendarmes, police, border guards and other people of interest to them. And they took them to special NKVD-run interrogation camps which was scattered in three different places in the Soviet Union. And the NKVD were the secret police? Yes. So the NKVD was Stalin's secret police. They were the forerunners to the KGB, and the KGB in turn was a forerunner to today's FSB. And if you are searching for parallels between the situation now and then, you will find that, you know, Vladimir Putin was trained as a KGB man, and a lot of the methods of action, behaviour, disinformation, this kind of thing, follows a trajectory that really hasn't changed that much since the 1930s. So thousands of Polish prisoners were taken to these special camps run by Stalin's secret police, the NKVD. So these were a rather unusual kind of camp. These were not regular prison camps. This was not the Gulag, they were not labour camps, but nor were they regular prisoner of war camps that we would associate where, you know, British RAF pilots were taken during the war. What they were was a peculiar hybrid, specific camps designed for interrogation purposes. And Although the men were kept in what we would consider very poor conditions, they were nothing like as ghastly or brutal as they might have been had they been in a gulag or a labour camp or indeed in somewhere like Lubyanka. So during the wartime, around 14,500 of these men were kept across three camps. So one camp was in Kozelsk near Smolensk in Russia. One was in what is today called Starobilsk in today's Ukraine near Kharkiv. 
And the other one was what is now Tver in northern Russia. So they were very, very far apart from each other. But all three camps were run along very similar lines. They were kept there for seven months. They were interrogated. A lot of effort was made to try and convert them to communism. They were shown films. They were invited to read books and have discussions. They were not physically badly treated, although there was a lot of blackmail and pressure brought to bear on them during interrogation. And at the end of seven months, for reasons, very complex reasons, which I think we will never fully know, a decision was taken at the very top of the Soviet hierarchy by Lavrenti Beria, who was the head of the NKVD, signed off by Stalin to execute these men. And this is where the kind of pattern of disinformation begins, because from the very outset, a concerted effort was made to convince these men that they were going home. So they went off joyfully, willingly, on transports of between sort of 50 to 200 men. And they were later taken and executed with a shot to the back of the head, which was a traditional method employed by the Cheka, who were the precursors to the NKVD, and buried in mass graves. And so there were three mass graves, each site near the camp where they had been kept. There were 395 men who survived. And for a very long time, these men were completely unaware that they were survivors. In fact, initially, they thought that they were the unfortunate prisoners because they were still on Soviet territory and they believed their friends had been sent home. And in fact, these survivors were taken to another camp where they were kept in slightly better conditions until the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union completely changed the pattern of the war and the Soviet Union then became Britain's ally, which meant that by her connection, the Polish government in exile and Polish forces, which were aligned with Britain, also de facto became allied to the Soviet Union. And so therefore the remaining prisoners, along with tens of thousands of Polish citizens who'd been deported to Russia, were liberated and they were allowed to go and join a Polish army which was being formed on Soviet soil by General Władysław Anders, who himself had only recently been released from Lubyanka prison. And what happened was, as these men were trickling down from all over the Soviet Union, from far-flung places, they were trying to put together an army and they were looking for their officers. And it very swiftly became apparent that a large chunk of these men were missing. So the Polish authorities were aware that around 10,000 actual officers out of the 14,500 prisoners, the rest were mainly police officers and gendarmes and some civilians, they were aware that they were missing. They were aware that they'd been captured by the Soviets in September 1939. They were aware that letters had been sent back home up until the point of around March, April 1940, but nothing had been heard of them since. The survivors, who still had no idea what had happened to them, could tell them part of the story, but they themselves had absolutely no idea what had happened to them. And when the Polish authorities approached the highest Soviet authorities, including Stalin himself, to question where are our officers, this is like, if you imagine, if you were looking at a school photograph, you would find that half of the sixth form was missing, or in fact, three quarters of the sixth form. This is a really sizable chunk of the officer class desperately needed for this new army. So initially, the responses that the Polish authorities received were sort of 
obfuscatory, vague, almost funny sometimes. Oh, you know, they're probably somewhere in the far north. They're unable to travel down yet. The weather's very bad. Why don't you wait? Oh, we have no idea. It became more and more apparent that answers which should be given were not being given. And Stalin at one point suggested that they'd all escaped to Manchuria. Other people suggested that perhaps they just didn't want to be found. But, you know, the war was moving on. And at this point, the Polish army was evacuated from the Soviet Union. They went to Persia, Iran, and then later to Iraq, Egypt, Palestine, Italy, and they took active part in the war. So the search forcibly had to come to an end. Although by the time they left Russia, I think the Poles who were out in the Soviet Union had a very clear idea that something sinister had happened. I think by this stage, they certainly were suspicious. I don't think anybody suspected anything as horrific as what had actually happened. But I think they probably thought that the men had been sent to one of the most far-flung gulags and had all died. But nevertheless, the fact that not a single one had shown up was really, really perplexing. So then we move forward in the war and the course of the war obviously is meaning that the German army is moving east. And as they move east, even as early as 1941, as the war moves on, the German army are moving east. And when they are in the Smolensk area, they come across this mass grave and they find several thousand bodies dressed in the uniforms of Polish officers. Now, this is where the politics and the propaganda battle kicks off, because, of course, the Germans know that they didn't do it, right? But this is immensely convenient for Stalin, by the sounds of it. Well, it is very convenient for Stalin, but it's very complicated for everybody else. So Joseph Goebbels, head of propaganda for the Reich, is delighted, and he announces in his diary, he does gleefully seize an opportunity to drive a wedge between the Allies by announcing to the world this grisly discovery of several thousand bodies in the Katyn forest near Smolensk in Russia. This is why it's known as the Katyn massacre, because this was the first site discovered. In actual fact, these were only the bodies from one of the three camps. So there were about 4,000 bodies there. So this kicked off the most extraordinary battle in propaganda terms because here were the Nazis, everybody's greatest enemy, announcing to the world Bolshevik bestiality. Nobody wanted to believe them and many people had good reason not to believe them. Even in occupied Poland, where obviously they had been living under particularly brutal Nazi occupation, when the news first came out they thought it was some particularly cruel Nazi trick. And it was only as more information became apparent that they realised that actually, in this case, the Nazis were telling the truth. However, in terms of where the Allies were situated, obviously the German announcement was mainly aimed at the Americans and the British, who found themselves between a rock and a hard place, politically speaking, because, of course, immediately that the announcement was made, Stalin denied it. He said, it wasn't us, it was the Germans. The Germans committed this atrocity in 1941, when they were in occupation of the Smolensk area, not in 1940. And so it then became a sort of war of words, with each side equally vociferously claiming that they held the claim to the truth. In the middle, the unfortunate Poles, 
particularly the Polish government in exile in London, who, because they were aware of the search for the missing officers that had taken place in the Soviet Union in 1941-1942, had a pretty good idea that actually the German version of events was likely to be true. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. 
that there was a growing amount of evidence that suggested that the Soviets were guilty, not least because the Germans, who had nothing to hide, invited delegations of Polish and other prisoners of war, including some British and American prisoners of war, to the site to inspect the exhumations. They also invited a delegation of Polish Red Cross workers whose responsibility it was to investigate the site, conduct exhumations, do examinations, forensic examinations on the bodies, and they invited an international medical commission. Of course, in international terms, all of this was very difficult to completely prove that graves were in a war zone. The only neutral means of assessing it would have been an international Red Cross commission, which is what the Poles desperately wanted. But unfortunately, in order for an international Red Cross commission to go... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ahead, they needed the permission of all parties. They needed the agreement of all parties including the Soviet Union. So although the Germans said yes and the Poles said yes, the Soviets inevitably refused and therefore it couldn't go ahead. So in answer to your question, yes, I think Churchill and Churchill is quoted to have said he's very ready to believe that the Bolsheviks were capable of this level of brutality. However, for the sake of the war effort, Both Britain and America adopted what one might most charitably call an attitude of constructive ambiguity. They basically sat on the fence, said, well, we can't really prove anything conclusively while there's a war going on, and brushed it under the carpet. And so the war went on, and the Poles were left in the invidious position of knowing the truth. Stalin took the opportunity of using the row to break off diplomatic relations with the Polish government in exile in London, something which he had already been planning to do several months previously, in order to install his own puppet communists, who were known initially as the Lublin Poles, and who later formed the backbone of what became the communist government in post-war Poland. So the Polish government in exile in London was sidelined. After the death of General Sikorsky, The Polish government in exile really became less and less relevant during the war and after it. So their opinion was not listened to. At Nuremberg, the question of Katyn was sort of, again, brushed under the carpet because it was the Soviets who were responsible for judging crimes which had been committed in the eastern zone, which, of course, meant that they were effectively judging themselves. And basically, during the Cold War, the entirety of the Cold War, the official version of the Katyn massacre was that it was a Nazi crime committed 
in the summer or autumn of 1941. I should mention the fact that alongside the German Medical Commission, the Soviets had sent their own commission in 1944 when they had retaken Smolensk as part of the movement in the war and had found, in inverted commas, documents on the bodies which apparently testified to the fact that the men had still been alive in 1941. In order to achieve this, special NKVD sections were sent to dig up the bodies, plant documents on them. They intimidated witnesses who'd spoken to the Germans. They prepped their own witnesses to make statements saying that they had witnessed Germans killing the Poles. And so thus, this constructed, fabricated narrative started to take shape. And throughout communism, so for over four decades, subsequent NKVD, KGB, the Polish Communist Secret Police, the UB and the SB, worked incredibly hard to maintain this fabricated narrative. They went so far as pursuing some of the doctors who participated in the German exhumations. Pretty much every survivor and anyone who had taken part in the Polish Red Cross delegations ended up having to live in exile after the war. It really was the most extraordinary exercise in controlling a narrative. So the lies and the oppression continue for decades and decades after the war. At what point do we start to even begin to realise the truth? Well, it depends who you are. So from the Polish perspective, the truth was realised very early on. And throughout the years of communism, although the subject was taboo in Poland and they were not allowed to speak about it, the widows were very poorly treated. Children of the victims had trouble getting good places at university or, you know, they were not allowed to speak about it. But there was a lot of underground activity, a lot of interest in it. And gradually towards the 1980s, this discontent and these inquiries about it became more and more overt. In the Soviet Union, if they knew anything about Katyn at all, they were told that it was a Nazi atrocity. And in the West, so during the 1950s and then again in the 1970s, there were several efforts to really try and bring evidence to light that would prove that the Soviets were responsible and I think there was a general understanding that unspoken on official terms, but I think most people who thought about it had a pretty good idea what had happened. Of course, nobody was able to prove it definitively and neither the British or the American governments of any political hue over the years ever really wanted to rock that particular boat. So it was not until the collapse of communism that Gorbachev actually openly admitted Soviet guilt and handed over relevant papers to General Yaroslavsky. And then a couple of years later, Yeltsin handed over further documents to Lech Wałęsa. And it was at this stage only that the other two mass burial sites were revealed and that many of the relatives were dead by this time. But it was only then that they were able to identify the sites and form commemorative burial grounds. And there was also at this point Originally, they knew about 14,500 victims, but a further 7,300 victims have been added to the score who were murdered in Ukrainian and Belarusian prisons under that same order 
dated March the 5th, 1940. And this is the order, amongst other archival documents that came to light in the 1990s, where Beria orders their execution and we see that it's signed off by Stalin. It's astonishing to think that it took that long for these sites to come to light and that the families, so many of them, would have never had closure about what happened to their fathers, their brothers, their sons. All because Stalin wanted to, I guess, impose a purge of sorts of those at the higher levels of the Polish military to make his own occupation easier and his own rebuilding of that country or oppression of that country much easier. Do we know to the extent to which it did help Stalin to impose that communist government in Poland? Well, it's a very difficult question to answer because one of the main aims for Stalin when he agreed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in August 1939 was that he wanted to take back the eastern parts of Poland, which had been given to Poland after the end of World War I in the Versailles Treaty, when we might be worth reminding listeners that Poland had lost its independence for over 150 years when it had been partitioned in the late 18th century between the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Germany. And these partitions had taken various different forms over the years and it was not until after World War I that Poland regained its independence. And this is where Central and Eastern European history begins to have a very modern resonance because these borders have always been disputed and fluid. So the Poland that you saw in 1939 was roughly the same geographical shape as it is. It was just a lot further to the east. So what were known in Polish as the Kresy, the borderlands, very quickly in September 1939 became incorporated into the Soviet Union as Western Belarus and Western Ukraine. So the city of Lviv, for example, was prior to the war known as Lviv and was Polish. Prior to, it's also been known by various other names. Its history has passed between various people over the years. But so this eastern part of Poland, Stalin had his eye on it from the very start. And possession is nine-tenths of the law. You know, the whole of Eastern Europe was occupied by the Red Army, and as far as the West was concerned, what were they ever going to be able to do to dispute that? Stalin knew that Poland itself could never be fully incorporated into the Soviet Union because he just knew it wouldn't be possible. They were too virulently anti-Soviet. Nevertheless, they managed to impose a communist government there who did manage to remain in power until 1989. These are all pertinent things to bear in mind. Do we have any form of justice that comes to light? Is anyone put on trial? Is anyone held accountable for these crimes? No. (laughs) That's the short answer. No, because by the time you're in the 1990s and the early 2000s, and both Russian and Ukrainian and Polish scholars have access to documents and the Katyn Families Association are trying to get some kind of restitution or they try to get it classified as genocide or various attempts were made. But the Russian legal system does not allow for that kind of retrospective justice. And really the whole thing just eventually petered out. I mean, what they did achieve, there was a period where things were looking much more hopeful. 
in the early 2000s, right up to about 2010, there were a lot of movements between Russia and Poland where they had joint commemorations. And don't forget that many of the sites where these Polish prisoners are buried, so one of the sort of awful things to reflect about NKVD crimes is that the sites where the Polish prisoners are buried are also burial sites for Soviet citizens who were murdered at the time. And in another thing relative to Ukraine, there was a very, very similar massacre committed in Vinitsia in Ukraine in, I believe, 1938. Similarly, mass burials shot in the back of the head, buried underneath an NKVD recreational park. The soil of the former Soviet Union is awash with the bodies of Soviet citizens killed by their own secret police. Which makes it even more shocking to think that in 2010, Putin joined then Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk at a ceremony commemorating the massacre. But of course, that in itself then ended in tragedy, did it not? That's true. And this is a very pivotal event because in 2010, it was the 70th commemoration of the massacre And as you said, Putin and Donald Tusk, who was then Prime Minister of Poland in a power-sharing agreement with Kaczynski, who was president, they had gone through their ceremony. And then there was a second ceremony planned, which was more of a kind of Polish ceremony, where the Polish president, accompanied by nearly 200 dignitaries, were arriving by plane, and their plane crashed just outside Smolensk. The initial response to this tragedy was a sort of warming of Russo-Polish relations. Putin was very helpful. There was an outpouring of sympathy from local Russians. Andrzej Wajda's film about Katyn, so a very famous Polish director, Andrzej Wajda, whose father was killed, who was in Starobel's camp, he had made a film about Katyn, which was then broadcast in Russia. So there was this big outpouring. It looked like things were going to get better. But things then got worse. There were disputes about the investigation. The Tusk government's report, which concluded that pilot error and weather and a combination of factors were to blame. It was an accident, was disputed when the Law and Justice Party came to power in 2015. There were members of that government who felt more strongly that they should be looking at the possibility of Kremlin involvement and conspiracy Given the history of Katyn, given the history over communism, you can understand why there might be a likelihood of jumping to these conclusions. And the present day, weirdly, there's a sort of parallel situation with Katyn, which is that in the absence of any completely neutral investigation, it's still impossible to know fully what happened. And I wouldn't want to hazard an opinion on that myself. But as the years have gone on, unfortunately, both sides of the divide attitudes have hardened. Putin has become more nationalistic, as did the Polish government. Katyn was a subject that could be used on either side to support a different and opposing argument. So obviously, we are talking in the context of events which have brought, I suppose, Russia's relation with the West to such a point that actually a lot of the previous things seem irrelevant. And we are now indeed seeing scenes in Ukraine that have a chilling reminder of not just Soviet times, but actually specifically Stalinist times. And that's deeply worrying for everyone, of course. And similar claims by Putin that the Ukrainians have staged 
these atrocities, these massacres that we're seeing outside in the smaller commuter towns of Kiev. And so your history provides us with just that historical backdrop we need to understand that fake news isn't something that's particularly modern. The lies of politicians are something that have pervaded Russian-Soviet politics for a very long time indeed. Jane, Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and for telling us about this important history. Where can people read more about it? So they can read my book, Surviving Katyn, which has just come out in paperback. It's available both in the United Kingdom and the United States. I'm very thrilled to say that it's just won the Mark Linton History Prize this year. And it was announced today, the day of our interview, that it's been longlisted for the Ondarcho Prize as well. So I'd be very delighted if people choose to read it and they can find what it really focuses on is the experience of the survivors and the investigators. And it charts the process by which they experienced at first hand this extraordinary chain of events right up towards the end of their lives. Well, Jane, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast. You are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Congratulations on such a prestigious prize. And I highly recommend everyone out there to go and buy the book. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, James. Lovely to talk to you. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.